we continue to take on the yoke of our rabbi, our master teacher, Jesus, by studying his teachings specifically as he presented them in what has been called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew tells us that those who show themselves to be the true disciples of Christ drew near and sat at his feet while he taught. Figuratively, that is exactly what we need to do. Sometimes we really just need to sit down, shut up, and uh, listen to Jesus. If you're trying to learn from a person, one of the best things to do is see how they spend their time. Read the accounts of Jesus' life from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll see that our Lord spent a lot of time in prayer. Prayer was, in fact, his first priority. I've often wondered just how much time Jesus spent praying. As often as the gospel writers mentioned it, he must have been in prayer constantly, sometimes in a group, but more often by himself. As Luke tells us, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Jesus was by himself praying often. And sometimes he would pray for what must have seemed like forever to his disciples. At least once, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying. Other times, he would simply spend the night. As Luke records in another place, it was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. He spent the whole night in prayer. By definition, Christians claim to follow Jesus Christ. So do you follow him in prayer? Do you often slip away for prayer? Have you ever prayed all night? Do you really think you can follow Jesus well in other ways if you do not follow him in this way? Maybe this is one of the main reasons we do not follow Jesus as we should. Maybe our biggest problem is a lack of prayer. If Jesus needed to pray often and for extended periods of time, how much more do you and I need to do the same? I wonder if someone were writing a story about my life or yours, if they would ever pause in the narrative long enough to say, and after that, Mark went off to a quiet place and prayed. You might wonder, where does our pastor pray the most? (laughs) Three places come to mind, but the number one place might surprise you. I pray in my bed. I have this sort of deal with myself that I will not get out of bed before I have my time with the Lord. I've learned that if my feet hit the ground before I do so, I'm not going to be able to stop and spend the time I ought to spend. And so I sit up in bed and pray before I get up. My beautiful, wonderful wife often brings me coffee. So she can't have the same rule or then I wouldn't have my coffee. But at any rate... The other two places I pray the most are in my recliner in the living room and out in the wilderness in places where an off-road vehicle is required to get there. Do I really need a highly capable off-road vehicle with 35-inch tires like my beloved Black Beauty? Yes, I need her because she gets me out into the wilderness 
away from everything, everyone, and most importantly, away from cell phone signal so that I can pray. What about you? You ever slip away to the wilderness or to some quiet place of solitude? Or do you have what they used to call a prayer closet for extended periods of prayer? If you're following the example of Jesus, you have some place where you can get alone for prayer. But we all have our excuses, don't we? We're so busy, right? Everything we have to do is so important to so many people, but surely none of us think that what we have to do is more important than what Jesus had to do. At times, there were thousands of people hanging on every word he said, thousands who placed their hope in every action he took. And yet Jesus often stopped the whole show, even sending people away or disappearing into the woods just to get by himself for prayer. Were there no more people to heal? Were no other souls in the balance? Of course there were. And yet Jesus would stop all of his important work to be alone for prayer. You and I need to follow his example. Today we come to the primary place in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches about prayer. Let's hear what he has to say. From chapter 6, starting in verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Today we will spend most of our time on the model prayer which Jesus shares in verses 9 through 13. But before we get into that, let's look briefly at verses 6 through 8. And notice that Jesus starts by talking about private prayer. The Lord's Prayer is actually presented as a corporate prayer, as we will see. But first, Jesus calls us to the kind of prayer that is done in solitude. He says, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray in secret. This is incredibly important. Jesus starts with private prayer because our corporate prayer life will never progress beyond the level of our private prayer life. Corporate prayer happens in different places, but the most obvious place is the Sunday morning worship service. I think Jesus wants us to understand that if we do not regularly have private prayer in a secret place with God, our corporate prayer with others will likely be anemic. Jesus first calls us to private prayer because our public prayer life will never be what it could be until our private prayer lives are what they should be. And then in verse 7, Jesus gets specific, tells them to stop the meaningless repetitions because God is not impressed by rote activity. So what does Jesus mean here regarding repetition? Does he mean that we should never pray the same thing twice or that, um, that we should be careful not to bore God with lengthy prayers when there's much to pray? No. Does he mean that we should not use a prayer list or pray for the same things every day or even that we should never ask for something over and over uh, in the same prayer? No. 
This is not what Jesus means. I think it's perfectly fine to repeat yourself to God for emphasis. If you ever have a sick child, uh, you, you will be doing that. <laughs> You're going to pray the same thing over and over and over. And that is okay because it's coming from your heart. Some of the parables Jesus shared make this clear. Also, that a little further along, he specifically tells us to keep on asking and seeking and knocking. Even about one singular request. When Jesus says not to use meaningless repetitions of the Gentiles, the emphasis is on meaningless. He's actually referring to certain pagan worship practices of the time. The Greek word translated as meaningless repetition actually means to stammer or babble. In the pagan pagan religions, prayer was sometimes associated with the utterance of nonsense syllables, which were also used in various incantations as a part of the practice of magic during the time. Particularly worshipers, worshipers of Baal, Uh, And Diana of Ephesus were known for repeating phrases over and over in this chant-like way that just kind of get lost in the moment. This is almost certainly what Jesus had in mind as a comparison, the idea of meaningless babble. But we also meant to say to these Jewish listeners on the hillside is that when their prayers became more about quantity than they were about quality, or, or if they were not really meaning what they were saying, or when they were trying to impress someone with eloquent words, or basically when their heart was not truly engaged, all God would hear from them is the same thing he would hear from these pagan prayers, blah, 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 blah. Sometimes it is better to sit in silence until God shows you something about which to pray, or to read Scripture prayerfully, or to use a prayer model as a guide like the one we'll look at today. Or to work through a prayer list of meaningful things to pray. Anything other than meaningless words uttered for the sake of being able to say that you prayed. God is not impressed by numbers of words or chant-like repetitions. In other words, God actually listens to what you are saying when you pray. I'm aware that many people struggle with knowing what to pray. And I have had my own struggles. Sometimes it's hard to know what in the world to say to God. Anybody else struggle with what to say to God? (laughs) Well, over the next few minutes, Jesus is going to help us out in this area. By the time we're finished today, if we will sit at the feet of the Spirit of Jesus, who is in the room, and if you'll apply His words, you will have learned to pray better than before. I believe that because every word out of the mouth of Christ has the power to transform your life, thus bringing a little bit of heaven to earth. Jesus gives us just exactly what we need. He gives us structure. He gives us a model. He doesn't give us something to repeat, which would likely become meaningless repetition in time. But instead, he gives us a template. And this is exactly what most of us need. Notice that Jesus says, pray in this way, not pray this prayer. You see that there in verse 9? Pray in this way not pray this prayer. That's important. Jesus never said, pray these words. No, he said, pray in this way. And then he gave us what we call the Lord's Prayer. The next thing I want to point out about this model prayer is that Jesus prays these words as if offering them on behalf of a group. Have you ever noticed that? He speaks from a plural perspective. He uses the words our and us and we. Jesus has just finished telling us to pray in solitude. 
But then in using plural language for his model, I think he wants to show us that praying together is also important. You'll notice that many of the songs we sing use together language. And as I keep explaining, many of those songs are prayers, and all of them should be prayerful at the least. Our songs and hymns of worship are to be offered to God as corporate prayers. By the way, many of the modern songs we do are full of great theological truth. I could read several of them and you'd go, oh, there is a lot of great stuff in there. Just as much as the old hymns. Some have more deeper truth than others. Just as was the case with the hymns and songs in the old hymnals. Some modern songs are designed to be a simple prayer of praise to God. Others have just as much biblical truth as the best ancient hymn ever written. There is so much ignorance on this that I see on social media, particularly. It's just constantly there, and I want to comment, but I don't. (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Dustin. (laughs) The value of the words of a song or hymn do not fit neatly into categories as if old hymns were full of doctrine and newer songs were not. In truth, many of the the old hymns I remember singing the most were not even technically hymns, but they were actually gospel songs. And if I quoted some of them to you right now, you'd probably have to admit they're kind of wonky. Do you really want to keep singing when the role is called up yonder? Like for, what, five more decades, another couple centuries? Read the words of some of the modern songs Connor chooses for us, and you'll find they're plenty rich with meaning It's both and is what I'm saying. Regardless, it's true that we pray corporate prayers together here in this place every Sunday morning. That's what we're doing when we sing. And by the way, if you'd rather pray the words than sing them, that'd be better than singing them without praying them. Right now, the point is that this is a house of corporate prayer. And remember what I said, the meaningfulness and effectiveness of our corporate prayers will peak at the level of our private praying. Beyond the worship service, one of the main things we want to see happen through our go groups is people praying together and for each other. Prayer and community is important, and that's what Jesus has in mind here with his corporate language that he uses in his perfect prayer example. Now, the main thing that I want to show you from the Lord's Prayer today is that Jesus gave us a model. He gives us a template. He gives us structure, which is exactly what we need. I want you to know that I use the Lord's Prayer as a model quite often, especially when I just can't figure out what to say. This is where I go in my head when I need help with how to pray. Jesus said, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven. And here's what I mean by using this as a model. Take each phrase and turn it into a paragraph or several paragraphs as you pray. What you may want to do as you're learning this is to start off your prayer by actually saying the words, Our Father who is in heaven. And then use that as a jumping off point to spend some time thanking God for being your Father. Just go ahead and camp out there for a while. And then you might pray something about the fact that He is in heaven. Meditate a little bit on what you know about heaven, the place where everything is as God would have it. 
And then join him with the angels in articulating the fact that God is holy, that he's high and lifted up and set apart. Anything else that comes to mind regarding the heavenly kingdom of God where the Father is seated on the throne. Do you see what I mean in terms of using the Lord's Prayer as a model? The opening part of my prayer is going to hover around the incredible fact that God is my heavenly Father. This gives me a place to start. Now, not only does Jesus give us a model, but in this model, we can learn several great prayer principles. First of all, from this first phrase, Jesus teaches us to, number one, address God in intimate terms. Address God in intimate terms. Our Father. Jesus was saying, he's not only my Father, but if you are my disciple, then God is your Father too. The God of heaven wants you and me to call him Father. That's enough to kick off a pretty good prayer of gratitude right there. Speaking to the church in Galatia, the apostle Paul wrote, So you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 8.15 says, So you should not be like cowering, fearful slaves. You should behave instead like God's very own children adopted into his family, calling him Father, dear Father. The New Testament teaches us to address God in intimate terms. Let's... Pause and let that sink in. We're talking about the God of the universe right now. And he wants us to call him Father. I realize some people didn't have a great earthly father. That has nothing to do with this, really. Listen, the God of the universe is going to be just a little bit different than your earthly dad, okay? No matter if he was great or terrible, the distance between him and and God is vast. Jesus is saying, hey, whatever your earthly father was like, how about if you could have God as a dad? Wouldn't that kind of override and overwhelm whatever your earthly dad may be like? The point is that God wants to be a good and perfect father to you. And he wants you to relate to him as his child, God. It's crazy. It's just way too mind-blowingly awesome to revert to thoughts about imperfect earthly fathers. The God of the universe wants you to call him dad. You get that? Do you hear that? Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. There's an incredible video out there wherein uh, Louis Giglio, I know, funny name. Well, Louis Giglio talks about the stars and um, their sizes as a way of showing us just how big the God who breathed them into space must be. In that video, Giglio talks about the earth as if it were a golf ball, like the earth, if the earth was a golf ball, the size of a golf ball. And for example, he talks about a star called Canis Majoris, and he explains that you could fit seven quadrillion earths inside the area of this one star. And then by way of comparison, he points out that if the earth were reduced to the size of a golf ball, seven quadrillion earths would cover the entire state of Texas in golf balls, 22 inches deep. That's how many earths could fit into this one big dog star. Now, somewhere on one of those seven quadrillion golf balls is the state of Washington, and somewhere inside the That dot on that golf ball is Ridgefield, and somewhere inside that is Go Church. And here in this church, we were singing songs of praise this morning to the one who created not just the earth and not just that one star, but so many stars it's impossible to count them, even with today's technology and supercomputers. 
The one who created all of it with a word in a nanosecond is the one you are to call Father, dear Father. How can this be? How can you be that important? There's only one reason. Because God chose to make you his child. He chose to come and to die on a cross to earn for you the holiness you needed to draw near to him. Now, anyone with a faith to trust in Christ can be adopted as a child of God. And by grace through faith, the same God who created it all becomes your heavenly father in that instant. So when it comes to prayer at this point, as the blood-bought son or daughter of God, really, you should not so much address your prayers to the almighty and omniscient, immortal, invisible God of the universe or something like that, but rather to your Father who is in heaven. I don't mean to say you should never ever refer to God in other terms. That's in the Bible too, and that's fine. But I think I can say that the number one way you would want to address God in prayer is as your heavenly Father. At any rate, this is how Jesus taught us to pray. Next, Jesus said, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is just another form of the word holy. Holy. Hallowed is another form of the word holy. This means perfect, sinless, set apart, high and lifted up, exalted. So don't miss the paradox between these first two phrases. First, it's our Father, and then it's holy is your name. This is precisely the God we serve. He is completely unapproachable, and yet he lives in the hearts of his children at the same time. He is indescribable and unreachable in his perfect holiness, dwelling in unapproachable light. And yet he is so near to us right now that he knows our thoughts. Our relationship with God should not be possible, but with him all things are possible. This is something to remember when things don't add up in life, by the way. Our Father is not limited by what makes sense to us. He is holy. He is God. And yet he's our Father. Hallowed be your name. Jesus pray. See, God's name distinguishes who he is. He's not nebulous. He's not whatever somebody wants him to be. He has a specific character. He's a specific God. He has a specific power. (laughs) The holiness of his name, he's set apart. Other gods are generic and false. But our God's name is holy. We know him as Yahweh and now also as Jesus. To pray, hallowed be your name, is to verbally affirm the perfect character of God to God. This is worship. So not only does the model prayer of Rabbi Jesus suggest that we address God in intimate terms, but secondly, it suggests that our prayers begin with worship and praise. That's number two. I think this is a very important principle, not just that we include worship and praise in our prayers, but I really think there's value in beginning our prayers with worship and praise. Beginning, the model prayer gives us a template by which to structure our prayers. If you want to ensure a shallow prayer life, start your prayers with a wish list. If you don't want to get closer to God in prayer, treat him as your own personal genie. How do you get beyond that kind of prayer? Jesus showed us. If you spend time praising and worshiping God before you make any requests, that will change everything. When you interact with God as God, the one whose very name is holy, you wind up praying a whole lot differently. 
But some of us aren't very creative, right? I mean, for some folks, the issue is that you really just don't know what to say. You don't have words. Coming up with words to worship God in prayer can be difficult. So let me give you a tool, and here it is. Use songs and hymns. Use worshipful lyrics that someone else has already written down. Get a hold of an old hymnal. You know, use it in prayer times. Download the lyrics to your favorite modern biblically-based worship songs and use those. If you don't like to sing, just pray the words without melody. Another great thing to do is use the book of Psalms from the Bible. Find some of the ones that are written as praise and adoration. Pray through them. If you struggle with what to pray, I'd encourage you to use psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as the Bible puts it, to help give you the words for personal worship through prayer. Just remember, worship is usually the best way to begin your prayers. Next, Jesus said, pray this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom has to do with his plan of redemption for this fallen world. This is what is meant by the title of my series, How to Have Heaven on Earth. The Sermon on the Mount is all about how we can participate with God in restoring this broken creation, especially in the lives of people, which can also be referred to as bringing the kingdom of heaven down to earth. In a limited way, followers of Jesus do this by the way we live our lives. And in a more permanent way, when Jesus returns, the kingdom of God will be fulfilled both ultimately and eternally in the new heaven and earth, which he will create to replace the old one. Jesus calls us to pray for the kingdom of God to come. And the heart of our prayer should be to see his will accomplished on earth just as it is in heaven, both now to a degree and ultimately in his return. Sum that all up in another prayer principle. Jesus is teaching us to ask God for his plan. That's number three. Ask God for his plan. Like it or not, Jesus did not teach us here to pray for our own plans to work out for us. He taught us to pray that God's plan would work out through us. In his model prayer, Jesus didn't tell us to ask for our own kingdom to be built, our own success, our own stuff. He taught us to ask for God's kingdom, for God's plan, for God's will. Now, does this mean there's never a time to ask for your desires or to ask for certain things to happen or that, you know, that, that, that God would bless you and bring blessings to your life? No, it does not. How do I know it doesn't just mean that? Because this is not the only time Jesus talked about prayer. And this is not all the Bible has to say about it. However, I do think what Jesus said about prayer here in our text today is foundational. It's foundational. Everything else should be filtered through this clear teaching wherein Jesus said, pray in this way. And the important idea laid out here is that we do not pray for our own plan unless we have first surrendered those plans to the will of God. And so in our requests and our knocking and asking and seeking, it should be clear that God's will and his kingdom come first. Let's go ahead and take time out right now to look at another verse or two, which taken by themselves can be the cause of false understandings about prayer. In another place, Jesus said this, you can ask for anything in my name and I will do it because the work of the son brings glory to the father. Hmm. Now, if you wanted to take that verse by itself, and if you took the word anything as absolutely literal, literal, you could build for yourself a doctrine which says that you can have anything you want if you just ask. If you take that verse alone, you might think that as long as you 
throw in the magic words in Jesus' name. You can flat out treat God like your own personal genie in a bottle. But is that really what Jesus meant here? No. Another verse almost seems to tell us that getting what we want requires nothing more than good positive thinking skills. Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Here, Jesus wanted to teach us something about the need for faith and believing in our prayers and not doubting, as James also taught about as well. But taken by itself, one might get the idea that this is a magic formula. And of course, some teachers have gained quite a following by doing that. But listen very carefully. God never intended for us to use one verse at a time to develop our beliefs about prayer or anything else. He wanted us to put it all together until all the pieces of the puzzle create an authentic picture. It's so important to look at Scripture holistically. To become a true disciple, that is to be a person who is involved in living out the kingdom of God on earth, one cannot cherry-pick verses. Let's work our way back to the foundational passage we're studying today, the Lord's Prayer, where we're told to pray for God's kingdom and His will. On our way back to that foundation, look at another one of the sayings of Jesus regarding prayer. From John 15, 7, Jesus said, But if you stay joined to me and my words remain in you, you may ask any request you like, and it will be granted. The first verse we looked at a moment ago said it's all about asking in his name. The second one said it's all about believing. And now in this third verse, we see that it's all about walking closely with the Lord. And where does this lead us? See, if you're joined to Jesus, if his words remain in you, as he says, then how are you going to be praying? Well, you're going to be praying like Jesus prayed. And how did Jesus pray? And how did he tell us to pray? He said to pray in this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, even when facing the cross. I, get, I guarantee you, you may have faced some tough stuff. You've never faced anything like Jesus faced on the cross. It was much more than physical, by the way. I doubt any of you have faced anything physical as bad as the cross, but you definitely haven't faced anything like being God and taking on the sin of the world. So you never faced anything like the cross. And he faced the cross and he, he prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, I want your will not mine. And what did Jesus believe that he would receive the will of God? These were the kinds of prayer Jesus prayed. These were his words. And so if his words remain in you and you stay joined to him, then you will pray kingdom prayers like he did. Now, watch how the puzzle comes together. As you pray in Jesus' name, placing your faith in and truly believing God, Walking closely with him, with his word in your heart, which means surrendering your request to his will. Then yes, indeed, within those parameters, your request will be granted, just as Jesus said they would. Now, if you think that's not as good as getting whatever you want, right when you want it, you're thinking at a very shallow level. The will of God is perfect, and his plans for you are good even though it doesn't seem that way sometimes. Does anyone remember how we defined the word blessed back in the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount? To be blessed is to receive what you would want if you really knew what you wanted. 
Let's say if you really knew what you wanted, you would want God's kingdom to come and his will to be done through your life. Next, Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. So if I'm using this as a model, I would now turn to the things I need from God. And yes, you better believe I need some things from God. Using this as a model, I would now begin making specific requests. And maybe at this point, I would even use a list. I do. To help remember all the things that I need to bring before my father. All the things I said I'd pray about. (laughs) The principle is this. Ask God for necessities or ask God for needs. Ask God for necessities. Does anyone besides me take anything for granted in this life? We're so spoiled. You know, until you really go somewhere where people don't always have the basic necessities, you might not get this. Sadly, our ability to go on a mission trip to Nicaragua is still closed due to you know what. But hopefully next year, I get tired of saying it, COVID, Hopefully next year we will go. Haiti is another place that I uh, have gone in the past. It's even poorer there. I can promise one thing on either trip. If you go, your perspective on your own life here will change in ways that won't happen by watching something on YouTube or reading a magazine article. The truth is that until you actually go somewhere like that, you might not quite understand the idea of asking God for your necessities. And I'm as guilty as anyone. While I'm fairly good at asking God for the big stuff, how often do I actually ask God for basics that I'm so sure I'll have tomorrow? Things like food, daily bread, shelter, clothing. You know, I don't do enough of what Jesus demonstrated in his model prayer at this point. I need to do that. I need to pray for my daily bread. I'm going to start doing that more. But it's kind of awkward. You know, why does it feel strange to pray? God, please provide enough food and, and water for my family today. Why does it feel so weird? It's because we take so much for granted. We think that some bad things have happened. Nothing really that bad has happened, like what could happen and has happened before in history. Basically, if you don't ask God for the necessities, that probably means you think you can take care of yourself. Scary thing is, it's not beyond God to prove otherwise and to show you that you need his providence to make it in life. Jesus said we should ask for daily food. I think that, ha- that what happens when we do that is we acknowledge our dependency on God and our perspective has changed. Beyond this, we can take daily bread as representative of the specific request that we might want to make. Again, I found it a great help to keep a list and check off answers. Check it off when God answers that prayer and things are resolved. Jesus taught us to ask God for specific basic needs. Next, Jesus prayed, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Context provided by verses 14 and 15 shows us that when Jesus used the words translated here as debtors and debts, he was actually talking about sin. He wasn't talking about money here. Luke used a different word in his account, a word translated as trespasses. And that is definitely what Jesus was getting at. Again, this becomes very clear in the next couple of verses. So understand that this part of the prayer is about our sins against God, our sins against others, and the sins of others against us. So using this as a model, I now would stop and spend some time in confession, and I would get specific. Often there's no trouble thinking of what I need to confess to God. Other times I might need to pray as David did, search me. Oh God, and see if there be any unclean thing in me. As someone said, confession is good for the soul. 
And we need to start by confessing our sins straight to God, as Jesus demonstrated. The prayer principle here is simply this, ask God for forgiveness. Now, sometimes this gets confusing. Aren't we already forgiven by grace through our faith in Christ on the cross? Yes, indeed, we are, if you're a believer. But we still need to ask for forgiveness because we have this week's sin to consider, and although that sin is even already forgiven, we need to acknowledge our need for forgiveness in real time. Jesus knew that in doing so would ensure that guilt would not become a barrier between us and God. We can see this need to continue asking for forgiveness in another place where Jesus teaches about prayer. Luke records, then Jesus told this story to some who had great self-confidence and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a dishonest tax collector. The proud Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else, especially like that tax collector over there. For I never cheat. I don't sin. I don't commit adultery. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For the proud will be humbled, but the humble will be honored. There are many important truths in that passage, but for now, notice that the acceptable prayer was, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Now, some of you have no problem with this part. You know that you screw up all the time, right? But others of you, if you're honest, may be thinking, I thought I was already 100% forgiven, cleansed by the blood, spotless before God, my sin removed as far as the east is from the west. Both of you are right, assuming you've trusted in Christ and therefore are saved. Even so, you still sin. That's true. And it's also true that if you know Jesus, you are 100% forgiven of all your sin. I don't want anybody to be confused about this, so let me try to explain it a little bit more. It's absolutely true that when you cross the line of faith in Jesus Christ and receive Him as your Savior, He saves you from your sins, past, present, and future. Your identity before God now is actually that of a saint, not a sinner. All of your sin is already nailed to the cross of Christ. Your debt is paid in full. However, because we still live in these old bodies and we still live in a sinful, messed up place, we continue to struggle with actually sinning. Our bodies will not be perfected until Jesus returns. And so the truth is that we struggle through this life. We're not always going to do what God wants us to do. And sometimes we're going to do the things that God doesn't want us to do. When that happens, even though we are forgiven already, We need to bring those sins before God. And as Jesus said, ask once more for his forgiveness because not to do so is to take his forgiveness for granted, which leads to a self-righteous attitude like that of the Pharisee in the parable. Listen carefully. When it comes to a believer asking God to forgive him or her, the point is in the asking. For a believer... The desired end of confession comes in the asking. The point is not actually in God's response, which may well be to say into your soul, child, you are already forgiven. See, the point is not to get God to do something that is already done. That would be irrational. 
No, the point is in the asking. Listen, there are ultimate or eternal realities, and there are temporal realities. Hear this, as temporal beings, sometimes we need to do something for temporal reasons, even though no eternal reason exists. Take that one home and chew on it. As temporal beings, sometimes we need to do something for temporal reasons, even though no eternal reason exists. Here it is in more practical terms. Because we're not yet glorified, rather still living in our flesh, because we live in a world that's not yet redeemed, because of the imperfections that will plague us until the return of Christ, we need to keep asking God to forgive us. When I say the point is in the asking, I mean that we do this more for ourselves than for God. Because yes, it is true that as believers, he has already forgiven us. He remembers our sins no more. It is actually for the sake of our own hearts that we need to keep praying, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I'll be honest, this is something I've always struggled to understand. I can remember struggling with this as a teenager in church. This did not make sense to me in my own prayer life. How do I reconcile the fact that God has already forgiven me with the need to continue to ask for forgiveness? It hasn't always made sense to me. One time I was mulling this over with my wife, Christy, and she said, well, maybe it's like in a relationship with a friend where even if they've already forgiven you, you still need to ask them to forgive you. (sighs) Yeah, she's pretty dang awesome. (laughs) I think of things like temporal and eternal realities, and she thinks of that. Think about it. If you ask someone for forgiveness and they say, oh, I've already forgiven you. Does that mean there was no need for you to ask? No way. You still needed to ask. Even if they'd already forgiven you, the relationship wasn't entirely restored until you asked them to forgive you. Otherwise, you're taking that person's forgiveness for granted, which doesn't make for a healthy relationship. Maybe it's the same kind of thing with God. He's already forgiven us, but we still need to ask. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Don't miss the last phrase. As we also have forgiven our debtors, we won't spend much time on verses uh, 14 and 15 of our text today because I had a lot to say about the other part. But Jesus calls us to let the forgiveness received from God overflow to the people who need forgiveness from us. That is also an important part of prayer. Next, Jesus said, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So if I'm using this as a model, I would now spend time praying for the guidance of God, particularly away from evil. The principle here is this, ask God for protection. Ask God for protection. Ask God for protection from temptation and from evil. I believe Jesus is telling us to pray that the tempter, Satan, will have no access into our lives. A very important prayer to pray. And we're to ask God for deliverance from evil in general. As well, there is evil in the world and God can protect you from it. So you might want to ask. (laughs) There are many sources of evil in this world. Satan and his minions, the free will of sinful mankind, the curse that's upon the earth. All are causes or results of evil and all bring suffering into our lives. God will ultimately put an end to evil. But Jesus is calling us to go ahead and ask God that we might be delivered from evil even now. We should ask God for protection and we should pray that if evil things must happen, God will ultimately deliver us through it. That he will carry us to the other side of evil one way or another. I pray these kinds of prayers all the time. I don't 
pray for protection presumptuously or as if God is obligated to shield me from everything, but I do pray that God won't allow evil to happen to me or others in my care. I pray that the forces of evil will have no access to my life, and that includes the evil of temptation which comes from Satan. Let me tell you, it makes a noticeable difference when I regularly pray that God will keep me from temptation and other forms of evil. I do believe God answers that prayer, but only when I pray it. Church family, we need to be praying that God would deliver us from evil. You know, a lot is said, mostly by professing Christians these days, honestly, regarding our right to carry firearms. And most of you know that if I were to have a problem with that, I'd be a hypocrite. So, to be clear, I don't have a problem with it. But having said that, among believers these days, I wonder if there are as many people praying against evil as there are people carrying against evil. Listen, I'm here to tell you that prayer is more powerful than guns. Maybe it doesn't seem like it. That's only because you cannot see all that God does and all that God stops. So this goes out to all my sheepdog friends out there, and I'm with you. But listen, as you think about being ready to defend innocent people against evil, brother, sister, don't forget about prayer. It's the most powerful weapon in your arsenal. It's nice to know that Jesus encouraged us to pray that evil things won't happen to us. Because there's one prayer that's natural for us to pray. It's this one. And yet, we don't do it, do we? Not often enough. We need to remember we have an enemy. He's real. The Bible says he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for who he can devour. We ought to be praying for ourselves and for each other. Praying that God will protect us from temptation and from evil. I encourage you to learn from Jesus and make this a big part of your prayer life. Finally, Jesus closes his model prayer right where he started with praise and worship. We should do so as well. Jesus says, close out your prayers like this. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so if I'm using this model, I would spend time at the end of my prayer thanking and praising God for who he is. Sometimes people say, I just don't know how to pray. Well, here's a good place to start. Use the Lord's Prayer the way he intended it. As a model, take your notes home. Stick them in your Bible. Use this outline from Jesus to give you some structure for your prayers. The Lord's model prayer has the potential to revolutionize your prayer life, but it won't mean a thing if you don't apply it. Let's pray together as I close. Lord, thank you that Jesus has so much to teach us. Help us indeed to apply these words. But God, in this moment, I, I go back to the opening of the prayer, Our Father. And God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would speak to one here today who can't say that. You're not this person's father. 
Your word is clear. We have to be adopted. We don't start off automatically as your children. We have to come by faith in Christ. We have to accept and receive the gift of what's been done on the cross by faith. It's a radical transformation. The Bible talks about it being like something like being born again. It's a huge moment in our life. And not everyone has come to that moment who is in this room. And that means that you are not their father. You want to be. But God, for that person right now, I pray that you would bring conviction and a desire to receive what you're offering. Adoption as sons and daughters. To be your children. That even in this moment, someone would just say yes in their heart. Okay, please be my, be my father. Be my heavenly father. I, I, I receive this gift. I, thank you for dying on the cross so that I could know you. So that my sin could be forgiven. Today I come to the altar. Just me with all my sin. All my flaws. I don't know how I'm going to become somebody who supposedly follows Jesus. I've got so many things. But I'm coming, I'll surrender today. Just ask you to do it in me. Save my soul, Jesus. Be my father. And Lord, I pray for this one or two or however many that they might understand that their sins are forgiven that their home is now in heaven and that during the time we have left on earth, they have the chance to bring your kingdom into their life and through their life and into other people's lives, the kingdom of love and grace and forgiveness and truth and everything that Jesus is. And help them understand that this is not something to keep private, but something to tell on the mountains. Or at least maybe they could tell their pastor. We'll go from there. Thank you, God, for working in our lives. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.